If you have your Bibles, you guys can open up now to Numbers chapter 13. But all of history, people have always raised things up. They've always raised up banners and flags, a, a way to identify uh, and communicate information. You know, people, people would raise up a flag to tell troops, you know, how to move. People w- would raise up a, a flag as a, a form of declaration. I mean, we hang flags from our houses uh, and, and flagpoles in front of our government buildings as a way to identify who we are. Back in the 1400s in England, uh, the House of York and the House of Lancaster waged the War of Roses. And those two roses, one was a white one and one was a red one to separate the families. Back in 1812, Francis Scott Key stood aboard a ship. And as the, the British bombed Fort McHenry, he watched and he watched. And then in the morning our flag proudly flew over that fort and he crafted our national anthem in the Star Spangled Banner. And in 2007, Russia desired to claim the Arctic region. Uh, it was a disputed area right there at the North Pole and, and it's, it's full of minerals and resources and Russia said, we want to claim it. And so on August 2nd, Some two and a half miles below the surface, they planted a Russian flag and claimed the North Pole as their territory, to which the rest of the world promptly ignored them and went about their business. Right? But but flags, again, they're an identifier. They, They mean something. When we raise something up and we look at it, and today that's what we're going to see in the scriptures. And to recap where we've been, again, we've been walking through God's story. Uh, so, so God creates and man sins. He makes a promise to his people in the world. And he says, I will save this world. I will save my people. And he continues to fulfill that promise, right? We, we've seen time and time again, God's, as Dave said, God's faithfulness to his promise. And now the Israelites have been wandering the desert. And to just set the stage for where we're at the Israelites have fled uh, out of Pharaoh and out of Egypt. They, they've destroyed the army, and as they've come through the desert, God has provided manna, he's provided water for them. And God then brings them to the mountain. And he gives them the law, and he says, through the law, you will be separate from the rest of the world. And through the separation of the law, people will understand who I am, the great Yahweh. But in the very same breath, God also says, but you're not any different because you guys are also sinners in need of a savior. And so as they're traveling the desert, they've been complaining. They've had some of their rough moments. And God brings them now to Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan which I am giving to the Israelites, and from each ancestral tribe sent one of its leaders. So they've been wandering for two years, and God is saying to them, look, I'm ready to bring you back. I'm ready to bring you back to that land that I promised you. I'm ready to bring you home. So go send out some men, go spy the land, and come back. And so they they send out the man, and and, and they come back with, with this report in verses 26 through 29. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh. 
in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. And just like God told Moses in Exodus chapter 3 that the land is full of milk and honey, they come back and they go, what God had said is true. But there's all these people that live there, and they're really big. And so now this debate ensues about whether or not we should claim the land. God promised us. He said he'd go before us, but, but they're, they're, there's, there's giants there. They're going to destroy us. We're just a small group of people. And so they, they argue and grumble and they complain again. And they're like, God, did you just bring us out here to die? In verse 11 of chapter 14. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all of the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people out from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land about it. They've already heard that you, O Lord, are these people, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been, see, have been seen face to face, and that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But if you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them, and so he slaughtered them in the desert." Now may the Lord's strength be displayed as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving in rebellion. But yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So up until this point, the Israelites have essentially disobeyed God Ten different times in the desert. They just keep complaining. God, why? Why? You just want to kill us, God. That's all you want to do. And God's pretty upset. And he's like, I've had it. I'm going to just wipe my people out. I am done with them. And I'm going to start over. And I'm going to make a bigger and better nation. That's what I'm going to do. And Moses steps in and he says, God, God, but what about your promise? God, what, what are the nations going to say if you do this? God, please. And, and he appeals to the other character of God, not just God's justice, but he appeals to his love. And he says, God, please be forgiving on us. And God says, all right, I'm going to relent. And to kind of summarize the rest of chapter 14, he says, here's the deal. Anybody that is the age of 20 and older you are now going to die in this desert because you didn't trust me. Except for Caleb and Joshua. But everybody 20 and older, you will wander this desert. And then when you are dead, then I will bring the next generation in. 
So you will spend the next 38 years in this place. And at this point, the people feel really bad. And they're like, ooh. Okay, we get it. God, we're sorry. We trust you. Okay, guys, let's go. Let's, let's go get the land God promised. And Moses is like, guys, it's too late. Don't do it. And they don't listen. And they go out to attack. And what happens? They're defeated by the people in the land. And they come sulking back. And they begin their punishment. Chapter 16, we see some more rebellion. They, they challenge Moses and they challenge God. And what does God do? He opens the land. He, he swallows the main leaders. He sends a fire down to consume some of the other ones. And as they continue to complain and stand in opposition of God, he sends a plague where over 14,000 Israelites are killed because of their disobedience. Chapter 20, they complain again, not having enough water. They're, they're blocked by the Edomites and they're attacked by the Canaanites. And so things are not going well for the Israelites. And now we come to Numbers chapter 21. And this is our main passage today. So as they're sitting there in the desert, they keep complaining and complaining and complaining to God. And again, you could understand that the level of God's frustration is continuing to grow more and more and more with his people. So starting in verse 4 of chapter 21. They traveled from Mount Hur along the, the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake and he lived. So they're starting their last leg. They're finishing out their punishment. The people are, again, uh, complaining here. And it says they got impatient. They got discouraged. It, it, the word impatient there is actually they grew short, like a plant would grow too short, right? And, and their fuse with God is just boiling over at this point. And they're complaining. Why did you bring us out here to die? We've got no food. We've got no water. And the food you give us is miserable, right? Remember all that manna that they've been getting for the last 40 years, they're sick of it. You know, when I, when I spent my college class in Zimbabwe that one year, we, we ate something called sadza. And if you don't know, sadza's like a cornmeal. It's got a little bit more of a texture of like a mashed potato. But, but we stayed at this, this school area. And we stayed there for a couple days. Breakfast, lunch, that's all you ate with sadza. Just scooped it with your hands. Nothing else. Dinner, you got sadza and a little fatty meat. And so for several days, this is what I ate. I was a few days in, and I got to a point where I was like, I'm done. I'm not eating this anymore. I can't take it. And the kids were like, are you going to eat that? And I was like, no. And they were like, whoop. 
but I had it. So I, I get what these Israelites are probably feeling here. But we have to remember, it was their complaining that kept them in the desert. God was ready to bring them back into the promised land, but they didn't trust God. And, and so I, I could imagine that it's like God sitting there at the table with his kids, right? And he's like, time for dinner. And everybody comes running to the table. And the kids are like, manna again. And at this point, God can't stand it and just clears the table off. And he says, fine, you don't want to eat. I'm sending in the snakes. And if you've been tracking with us, you completely get that God is justified in what he's been doing. Because of the last couple of weeks, we have seen them disobey time and time and time again, in spite of God's miraculous signs and promises and their provision. And so the venomous snakes come and they begin to bite the people and they die. And at this point, they have a heart change and they go, oh, man. We really messed up. We've really done and God made, we, we've made dad angry. And so they go to Moses and they say, Moses, we get it. We're, we're really sorry here. Can you pray to God on our behalf? And so Moses prays and God says, look, here's what we're going to do. You're going to make a snake. You're going to put it up. And anybody that looks at the snake on the cross, they'll be saved. That's the deal, Moses. And so Moses goes and he gets a snake and he puts it on a pole and he lifts it up. And people who look at it are going to be saved. Now, let me just stop for a moment and say this. We can read things in scripture that sound really weird, right? That's your way of saving is putting a snake on a pole, the thing that's biting them. And then they look at it and they're saved, God. That's perfectly normal because there is a lot of weird things that happen in the Bible. Okay? It's okay to admit that. It is not okay to deny the truth or the validity of the Bible. So though we may look at that and go, eh, I still believe it to be what God called to do. And so anybody that's bit is cured. And that's it. We just go to the next part of the story. Now here's the thing. If we just move on, this part of scripture doesn't make any sense. We just have this one piece where they get, God gets angry and God puts up a snake and saves them. And this is why it's so important that we know all of God's scriptures. Because what God is doing again is laying a layer of breadcrumbs for the world to who the ultimate savior would be. You know, Ephesians 1 speaks all about God's plan from the beginning of creation. God, God has already written the whole story. God has laid out the storyboard of what's going to happen from start to finish. We're simply in the midst of living in that story. And so to understand what exactly is happening here in Numbers chapter 21, we need to hop over to the New Testament. We need to hop over to John chapter 3. So, so John is speaking to a Pharisee. If you don't know, a Pharisee is a, is a religious leader. They were the ones that were supposed to be guiding God's people. And he's specifically speaking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is talking with Jesus and he acknowledges, hey, I get that you're a good teacher. I get that. 
But Nicodemus doesn't quite get the full picture. He doesn't quite understand everything about who Jesus is. And, and so Jesus is talking with him and he says, look, you need to be born again. You need to be born of the spirit. And Nicodemus is scratching his head. He's like, what are you talking about? I can't go back into my mom's belly. I'm a grown man. And Jesus is like, ah, Nicodemus, let, let, me, let me explain this to you another way. Because again, you're supposed to be teaching God's people and you just don't understand. So John chapter three, starting in verse 10. Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. He says, Nicodemus, remember your history? Remember the history when, when our people wandered the desert? You remember that? Remember the snakes came out because they complained and they got bit? What did, what did I tell Moses to do? I lift up the snake and then people were saved. And he said, yeah. He said, look, the same thing has to happen again. The son of man needs to be lifted up. Now, the son of man is a very important phrase. It comes out of Daniel chapter 7. It's what we say is a messianic phrase or statement. Uh, the Messiah, the one who is going to save them. And he says, Nicodemus, the one that is going to save you is going to be the one that is lifted up just like the snake was lifted up in the desert. And so he says, listen, I'm, I'm leaving some breadcrumbs here. There's going to come a moment where that son of man will be lifted up. And, and that son of man is the one that I've been promising since the very beginning in the garden. The one, the one that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one that was promised to David. The one that was promised throughout all of your history. So let, let me boil this down to you, Nicodemus. I'm going to make it really clear for you. Verse 16. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And this is the verdict, that light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that he may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. This is Nicodemus. Look, God loves the world. God loves his creation. He loves his children, but they're disobedient. Their hearts are against him. And because their hearts are against them, because they're against God, there has to be judgment. There has to be punishment because of that. 
But God says, I don't want to see that for my children. I don't want to see that for the people that I've created. I'm going to make a way for them. And he says, here's the solution. I'm going to settle this matter once and for all. I'm going to lift up on a cross the Son of Man. And whoever looks to him will be saved. That's it, Nicodemus. If you want to know how to find salvation, that's it in a nutshell. Now, I just want to highlight a little side note here. Because if we were to keep reading John chapter 3, that's it. Jesus just gets with his disciples and they leave. And you're like, that's it? There's, there's, there's no response from Nicodemus? There's, there's no furthered conversation? But again, remember, God's story is not done and we have to hear the whole of Scripture. And I think what happens between him and Nicodemus is this aha moment where I think Nicodemus gets it. Because there's two parts where we see Nicodemus later. That when Jesus is standing before the religious leaders and they would have put him on trial and, and they don't want to give him a fair trial, do you know who steps in to argue on Jesus' behalf? It's Nicodemus. And after Jesus has died and he's put in the grave, he's there to accompany Joseph, who's going to bury the body. And Nicodemus comes along and he says, I want to be part of this burial process. See, I don't think Nicodemus sticks his neck out for Jesus if he doesn't believe who Jesus is. But to get back to the main issue here, here's what I want us to realize. The breadcrumb in the desert leads to Jesus. And there's four things that I want us to see between the lifting up of the snake and the lifting up of the Son of Man. The first thing is this. Guys, the cross is not preventative. It's curative. The cross doesn't prevent our sins. See, those people disobeyed in the desert. And the snake came out and they bit them and they were poisoned. And they were going to die. And that is the same thing for us. That we are already poisoned that our sins have tainted our lives and we are going to die because of it. But God said, I'm going to give a solution. And the cure, the antidote, is the cross. The second thing is, they both had to look at what was killing them. See, isn't it odd that the snake is sent out and that's what bites them. And then God tells Moses, now you lift that up. And if people look at the very thing that was killing them, they'll be saved. Well, when Christ is raised up, here's what it says in 2 Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. See, Christ took the sins on his shoulders. 
he bore the weight upon him. And when he was lifted up, we have to look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, what we are really looking at is our own sins. And he's saying to us, look, look, because that is what is killing you. That is the thing that Jesus has to die for. That is the place that you should be. But Jesus did something else. He said, look, there's a substitute. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. We've already said that because of our disobedience, there needs to be justice, there needs to be punishment. And in order to preserve that justice, God says you need to die because that is the punishment for your sins. That you need to face death. But again, God said, I love you too much to see that happen. God said, I care for you too much to let that happen. So, so I'm going to make a way to spare you. And in the Old Testament, the whole, the whole book of Leviticus, the sacrificial system, was that the animal could go and be sacrificed on your behalf. But you had to keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And God said, I want to be done with this. And we're going to make a way once and for all. And that's going to be through Jesus. And you know what? You you can't just give me some animal with a defect. You you can't just say there's going to be a substitute. Let's just take the guy in prison because nobody cares about him. Let's let his life matter for once. No, God looked at that and said, no, 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 no. What I want is perfection because that's what I demanded in the law. And the only one that could meet the perfection of the law was Christ. And so when Christ goes to the cross and dies... God says, now I'm satisfied. But here's the big part of all of this. We were all sinners. Our sin is what kills us. And there is a substitute. But here's, here's the part of all of this that we need to hear. You have to look to live, guys. What did God tell Moses? Those that were bitten, if they looked, they would live. And God tells us the very same thing. That we have to look to Christ as our Savior to find salvation. There is no other option. There is no other way. Acts 4.12 tells us that salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. It is not your works. It is not your good deeds. It is not your money. It is not your church attendance. It is not your social justice. None of those things are going to save you. It is only when you look to the cross and accept the blood of Jesus that you will be saved.
but you gotta look. And if the world continues to deny Christ, if the world continues to deny what he did on the cross, there is no other option for you. That when you stand before God, you will have to answer to God on your own account and your own good works. And God will look at you and say, is there perfection? And you will say no. And God will say, then you are punished because you chose to deny Christ. So instead of being offered eternal life, man has to live with condemnation. And so this has been my prayer this past week, is that as this message is preached and salvation is proclaimed, that there would be salvation. That as Nicodemus had his aha moment, that the world would also have their aha moment. So I'm going to stop here for a moment. And, and we're just going to take a moment. And I want you to just bow your heads and I want you to just pray. And you're going to do one of two things. Either right now you're going to wrestle with who Jesus is. And maybe you don't know exactly yet who he is. But you're going to wrestle with him. And you're going to wrestle with God. And you're going to let God speak to you. But if you already know who Jesus is, your job right now is to be a prayer warrior. And you're going to pray for the person that you know that doesn't know Jesus, that they would find Jesus. So we're going to take a moment. And then when we're done, I'm just going to continue with the sermon. I've got a little bit more. And then we'll finish up. So let's just take a moment and rest in that, would you? So I started this sermon talking about banners and flags. I started this with the idea that we have two things raised up, the snake and then the cross. When people looked at them, they found salvation. And when we die, we are going to carry a flag. All of you are going to die. And we are going to carry a flag with us. And if we look to Christ, Christ says, here's my flag. And when you march into death and you march to my kingdom gates, I will see that flag and I will know that you are my child. And you will get to experience the blessing and the joy of the eternal kingdom where all of the pain and all of the heartache, all of the mess and the filth of this world will be gone. And he said, you will be my loved child forever. But if we don't look to Christ, we carry a different flag. And I don't know what that is. There's a lot of things that people will hang their hats on in this world. But you will carry something else. And maybe you're going to carry it because you're confused and you don't understand this world. Or maybe you're carrying something else because you've just outright said, I don't want Christ. Well, when you, when you die and you march to the gates, 
God's going to look at that flag and say, you don't get to enter my kingdom. You instead are going to spend an eternity in the condemnation of hell. Now, I don't want that. And the Savior doesn't want that. And we know he doesn't want it because he already proved that at the cross by dying for us. But that's what it boils down to. That is left with what we have to decide. So so I'm going to finish this here. But when we are singing, we're after the service. I've got some people around the room you, you you can talk with. With Janice, I've got Ted in the back, Pastor Josh, I'll be up front here, Elder Dale. They're there. And if you're wrestling it in your heart with who is Jesus, and maybe you're not ready to look, maybe all you're doing is peeking through your fingers right now. We want to speak with you. We want to hear your heart and where you're at. Because I want to walk into the kingdom arm in arm with you. And I don't want to see you lost. And Jesus doesn't want to see you lost. And I know sometimes when we do things like this, we go, that's weird. You're going to ask me to, to, to move around the room in front of other people? Guys, I need you to realize something. That if you move when we're singing, if you move after the service, it is a celebration And we rejoice with you. This is not a a matter of embarrassment. This is a matter of life and death and our eternal soul. And if we don't understand those implications, we are missing what this world is. This world is about Christ. And so I want you to know Jesus. And Jesus wants you to know Jesus. So when you walk out, you have to answer this question. Which flag do you march behind? Let's pray. Lord, I I thank you. I thank you, Father, that um, you gave me an opportunity to respond Lord, you died for my sins. I don't deserve it, but God, out of your great love, you bore the weight and the punishment of what I have to, I should have gone through. But Lord, I pray for anybody that's wrestling that is here, anyone that hears this message online. Lord, I, I pray that, that we would encourage people to, to say, you gotta listen to this. If you don't know Jesus, you, you gotta go to the scriptures. You gotta go to the cross. God, let us, let us not be afraid. Lord, there are people that are going to bear the eternal condemnation because they denied you. God, that can't happen. So I pray, and I pray, and I pray, and I pray. Lord, spirit move.
moving us to be bold to share your gospel. Amen.